Show me the money. This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanica. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be A Better Investor podcast. My name is Raik van Niekerk and in this podcast I speak to finance and investment professionals about their investment journeys and we also look at their best and worst investments they've ever made and why they chose a career in managing other people's money and the idea is to find a few tips and tricks which could assist amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Nkareng Siwale. She's the founder and MD of Raindance Asset Management. And uh, before she started the firm in 2019, she was the Chief Investment Officer of Public Markets at Ashburton Investments. And she has been in the asset management business for more than 16 years. Nkareng, thank you so much for coming into studio today and for your time. Just give us a bit of background about yourself. Where did you grow up and when were you first exposed to investments? Thank you, Rake. Thank you very much for also having me. I've been looking forward to this chat. I grew up, I guess, the first 10 or so years of my life in Lesotho. My dad was Sotho, Mosotho, and my mom was Tossa from the Eastern Cape. And then when they separated, we moved, all three of us, so I've got two older siblings. We moved to the Eastern Cape with my mom and ended up going to school at Queen's College. Well, my brother was at Queen's College and I was at Queenstown Girls High. My sister and I were at Queenstown Girls High. So we all matriculated from there and somehow all found ourselves here in Joburg. They went to Vits and I was still in high school finishing off there. I wanted to go to UCT, to be honest, but my mom just wasn't comfortable with the idea of nobody looking after me. <laughs> so she asked very nicely, not so nicely, <laughs> that I come to VETS. So I did that. And I was registered at VETS for a BCom in economics. And yeah, that's what I did. Maybe why economics? I think I've always liked the idea of trying to understand how, like, you know, things function in the economy and all of that. And I really had no idea about markets entering that space. So you pursued a BCom in economics. When did you see the investment side (laughs) of economic theory? Yeah. So obviously, I suppose in the coursework, you get exposed to finance, you get exposed to investments. So you do those as a course. And so that was the first time I started to, especially on the investment side, that coursework, you read about equities and I'd never really understood the term or heard of it before at the time. So it was more about digging and trying to understand what it was all about. And I must be honest, I think I had, I don't know, I can't even remember which company it was. They called me about an interview to become an equity analyst. What what year was this? I don't want to give you your age away. So this was my final year. And, you know, you're about to write your finals, finals, and you're about to leave university and look for a job. So your CVs are out there and stuff. So they called me about to take an interview to become an equity analyst. And I was like, no, I I want to, you know, focus and maybe on the fixed income side just because of the economics degree and all of that. 
And to this day, I'm so grateful that that didn't work out because really equities what became... What company was that? I can't remember at all. I think it was one of the more like well-known, like bigger organizations in the, in the country. So I really can't remember. But to this day, I'm very grateful that I didn't completely shut the door on that opportunity because I've really enjoyed getting immersed in equities and stuff. So when were you first exposed to equities? So then I joined R&B, ultimately. And I must say, I started in like a miserable, at least I was miserable, in a miserable position. I was in transactional banking. You're a private banker? Private banker. And at the time, it involved having to get the client's checkbooks once they ran out of pages and delivering it to them and transferring between their call and check accounts. I just, I was pulling my hair out. And then an opportunity opened up in the private bank in portfolio management. And I'd already been talking to our HR lady to say, look, um, if you can find me an opportunity in portfolio management, I'd really. And she was like, yeah, roles don't really open up there much, very often. So when it did, she remembered to call me, which I was very fortunate with. Took an interview there and that was that. So then he started to manage portfolios. Uh, tell us about that journey because <laughs> it must be daunting. You know, it's one thing to manage your own money, but to manage other people's money, it's a totally different ball game. especially if it's other people's savings and life savings and you will have a massive impact in the lifestyle they will have post-retirement. And I don't think you're really coming into the industry at the age that I was, I don't know, probably on the other side of, like, the right side of 25, maybe. So you're young. That's debatable which side is the right (laughs) side. Which side side is the right side. But you're young and you don't understand that kind of magnitude of responsibility, right? So only when, I think, when things go really wrong, do you understand what your responsibilities are around managing other people's money. So I started as a dealer there, and this was 2005, And, you know, markets are heady. Everything, all you had to do was have air in your lungs, just breathe, and you would have picked a winner, right? So that was kind of me entering markets. And I was a dealer and hadn't really started managing portfolios. But you did have to have this curiosity, I think, which is why I say also around economics, a curiosity about the how countries and nations work. Similarly, within equities, you needed to have a curiosity about the companies and provide really broad information. I think once you become a portfolio manager, when you're making calls, then you need deep knowledge about those companies. But as a dealer, really just broadened the landscape for me to kind of see the different industries, how they're interrelated. Tell me, when did you buy or make your very first investment with the money you have earned, because that is important. And what was it? So with money that I'd earned, it was actually after my first bonus in portfolio management, not as a transactional banker. And that was really because you're in a team and the guys are teaching you to a very large extent and encouraging you to look, you start saving now. And the way to do that is in the equity market. (laughs) So... And I might get this wrong, but I think my first three buys, I can quickly tell you those names, Metrophile, Astral, and I think City Lodge were my first three buys into 
my portfolio with my first bonus in portfolio management. If I remember correctly, Metrofile performed really well during those years. It did during those years. And I think the story behind it, obviously, it was that the world is you regulation and the way it's moving. You have to store everything for five years or more, all the records, etc. And they were really the only player in the country and at the time regarded as quite a small cap. So that was kind of the idea behind it. But one lesson I learned on all three of those names was in 2008. And I must say, it, I was really fortunate to have been in the industry at that time. Did you get out before the crash? No, of course not. <laughs> How did I know? <laughs> I think that's when I realized that you're coming through an unprecedented time in markets when all like a rising tide was lifting all boats. And now you really realize that you really have to understand the companies that you are invested in and that companies are governed by cycles and you have to know their cost drivers and their revenue drivers. So I got hurt particularly in Astral for a while because then just commodity prices, like the, the soft commodity prices, they hurt them on the cost base, although it's also a revenue driver for them. And they took a while to come out of the malaise. So you didn't chicken out? I, <laughs> <laughs> I did not chicken out. I think eventually I did. By like 2011, I'd, I'd had enough of it. Metrofile also, I think around 2011, now things are starting to go digital. And I think questions around like, are they going to shift and recognize the changing environment. And I think they eventually did. But I also got out of that. I think those were my first buys, but the lessons from there were really that, especially going into a crisis, intrinsic value really matters in a company. So give us a version of what happened after you became a portfolio manager at Rand Merchant Bank. Of course, you moved to Ashburton later on which is part of the group. Then you became the chief investment officer of a very, very respected asset manager in South Africa. That must have been a fantastic journey. Oh, I often, especially at the time, I would look back and, and just really wonder how I landed up there. Because I think in the journey, you don't realize, you know, as you progress, when you become from dealer to portfolio manager, you're like, oh, it's just, you know, a career progression. You don't really recognize what this could potentially lead to the platform it's given you so yeah becoming a portfolio manager and this was for private clients I think it was a very different world for what now when I moved into Ashburton and now you're a fund manager and you're managing institutional monies but also a fund I think it's a very different ball game. But there's a team. You don't take decisions by yourself or yeah. do you? So that was a team so we'd always kind of run a team process and a team approach. So we'd have an equity team and within the equity team, there were sector responsibilities. You had to be on top of your sectors. And for me, I covered banks and insurers and ultimately the whole financial sector and was responsible for all the calls in financials. And similarly, we had the head of industrials and the head of resources. And then you kind of build out an equity house view on the back of that. And then you kind of then had a little flexibility in terms of the stocks you picked from that house view. Similarly with the bond team and then you can build multi-asset portfolios, etc. Yeah. So I think just the experience on both sides, private clients and then the fund management side, 
you had a lot more engagement on the private client side. Clients want to understand kind of the stories and the in their investments, yeah. Why that company, what do they do, how does it work? So it's more that kind of conversation, whereas you come to the fund management side and it's much more about the numbers, the performance, what was your valuation on this company, how did you arrive at it? And yeah, it's a completely different conversations. What are the risk exposures and how did you measure them and all of that? So very different conversations on, on both sides of that world. And I was, again, fortunate to have been exposed to both sides. And then in 2017, I was appointed deputy CIO for, on the listed market side. And they were going to continue to find the deputy CIO for private markets. And then we were, we were both appointed in 2018 or our CIO of listed and my colleague was CIO of unlisted markets. Yeah, that's a, a great <laughs> journey. Tell us about those two years when you were the yeah. final decision maker on most of the positions Ashburton took, I would imagine, in the equity space. Yeah, so the areas I guess I looked after under listed markets, it was the multi-asset equity team, hedge fund team, passives, and the fixed income teams. And also then the Jersey and London teams. It wasn't a very big team. I think we had just two people in London, but the Jersey team was was quite sizable. I won't lie, it was a really daunting, daunting time for me. You know, you just step into my former boss at the time. I'd worked with him for 16 years and you almost always felt like you had this air cover, right? Who was that? That was Paolo Senatore. And then when he steps away now you need to provide air cover for your team and your people who report into you right so you need to become that and step into that role so yes you do question yourself a lot whether you can do it do they think I can provide that for them and it was a difficult time I must say just in the business's evolution I think it was probably six years in into Ashburton's life that I stepped into the role of CIO and we were going through quite a difficult time as far as restructuring the business was, was concerned. So a lot of people's, I guess, careers were probably on the line, we're having to cost cut and rationalize costs across the business, rationalize our product offering as well. So there were many changes. So there um, were changes that I, you know, you step into that and that's always tougher business. Absolutely. So you were the CIO for, did you say, two years? And you said it was a daunting task, but then you decided to rather start your own <laughs> asset management firm, which I would believe would be 10 times Even as more. daunting. And 2019, you founded Raindance. Yeah. First of all, tell us about the name. Where does the name come from? <laughs> so I remember getting onto our family group, our family chat, and I texted my brother and sister and I said, guys, I want the company to be named after our dad. His name was Motlalipula, which means he who comes with the rain. So they put out like a few ideas. I think it was like three or four suggestions and Rain Dance kind of won, won that survey. <laughs> and um, that's how the name really came about to be. Yeah, it was named after my dad. So why did you start it? So towards the end of my time at Ashburton, my colleague and I at the time in our roles, our respective roles as unlisted and listed markets, we were 
talking about taking the company in a direction of of really starting to entrench ESG and that framework into the entire product offering. So everything in listed markets and everything in unlisted markets. And also, I must say, in the unlisted space, there were quite a few interesting things that they were already doing on the unlisted side, like the jobs fund, etc. So we wanted to make sure that we are also kind of known for that. So we were starting to talk about that. And if I'm being honest, I think Steinhoff shook me much more than I've ever admitted to Did myself. Did you invest in Steinhoff? Not in my, mm. my personal money, no. but we were overweight at the time of everything happening. We had an overweight position in it. And theoretically, I understood why we went into a Steinhoff. We're looking for additional RAND exposure. We already had all the RAND the Rand hedge counters in our portfolio and we wanted to go more because we'd always, I think as a team, stayed out of Steinhoff, to be honest, because we weren't comfortable that we didn't understand the story and the numbers. This was those difficult years around state capture and everything. You wanted to get as much Rand exposure as you could. And Steinhoff had just had their listing in Germany. And we tried to turn the tires on it, right? You're not alone, I can tell you. I think most <laughs> yeah. asset managers were exposed to Steinhoff. So I think that really shook me. And talking to my colleague, one of my things was, look, we really need to be aware of the governance in the companies that we invest in. But more than that, those governance issues can be highlighted or exposed in an environmental issue like BP and the oil spillage, right? So we just wanted to start moving in that direction. And then when I left, that was how I wanted Raindance to be founded, the framework on which it was built on. So it was Ashburton that was exposed to Steinhoff, not Raindance? It was Ashburton, yes. Okay, yeah, because um, it was the end of 2017. It was the end of in 2017 yeah. when it happened. Of course, yes. Like December, yeah. And so that holiday wasn't great. <laughs> I still remember I had an interview booked for me with Marcus Eusta oh, really? um, for their results and it kept being postponed, postponed during that, that time and then we realized, listen, something is... They're not going to publish results. <laughs> okay. Come 2019, you start your own business, but there are, and I've done some research, say around 200 boutique asset managers in South Africa. We have got the big guys, 91, Coronation, Alan Gray, Ashburton, and then you have 200 niche or boutique asset managers. What do you do differently? Why should people invest with Raindance and not with one of the others? Thank you for that question. I was hoping you'd ask it. We're not saying we we are a, an ESG fund manager. And so if you want an ESG solution, come to us. No, that's not what we're saying. What we are saying is we want to provide returns to investors, but we also understand that intrinsic value, it just has to be looked at from a much deeper perspective. So when arriving at a valuation, at a company's valuation, yes, you look at the normal drivers, your balance sheet, your income statements, etc., and you do those forecasts. But in your discount value, you have to account for what they're calling environmental capital and the social capital that you used and leveraged to input into what your business is. But how do you do that? How you do that, you do it with great difficulty. (laughs) And I think it's coming together now, but the world 
globally, there's been a call for standardizing how do you measure the E, how do you measure the S and the G. And there's been a, a call and a wave towards finding one kind of approach almost. I don't think we're really near settling on one, but there's been a lot of consolidation, I must say, with all the standard providers and data providers. But there's a lot of subjectivity involved. It's not like a discounted cash flow analysis, which is pretty standard. There must be subjectivity, but I also think subjectivity has been entrenched in investment management for years. I often like to say what I do is not... It's not a science, it's an art. (laughs) And sustainability just kind of adds to the difficulty of arriving at that decision, but you have to consider it, especially in the world we're living in today. So something as simple as close to home, like the riots we had in July 2021, I think, you needed, you know, how had you factored that kind of social unrest, just given the build-up to people's situations, Um, economic situations, you must have tried to expect or anticipate that something like that is a volatile situation like that is kind of on the cards. And then you must, I guess, anticipate it in your valuations and your forecasts as well in terms of how would this impact on that That smart. That must be incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult. But now this is where you need to also, you don't just engage your normal management teams and go away and go build your valuation. You have to talk to their suppliers, have to talk to the bodies that regulate the industry that they operate and what kind of player are they in that space. You have to talk to even just their clients. What's the experience with a pick and pay, for instance? And I don't mean customers. I mean, like clients, they may be their suppliers. suppliers. Yeah. Mm. And I think you ultimately try to get a sense of a team, you get a sense of whether they really consider, you know, are they ahead of the curve and you're not going to win them all, you're not going to foresee all of them, but are they ahead of the story in terms of their environmental obligations? Give us a sense of which companies on the JSE you regard highly in the ESG space in which you are invested in. I can probably talk about clicks which we've done a bit of work on. You know, we just got our first allocation, which we haven't yet, we're not yet invested. But part of our approach is to, you know, uh, we definitely have to start engaging management and really understand the quick, their approach. Martina Engelbrecht, I think you'll like her a lot. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Then I'm looking forward to that. But really having just done the desktop analysis of a company like Clix. So first of all, we say our approach is premised on two pillars. One is quality. So your traditional approach, are you a value manager? Are you a momentum? We're a quality play. And then the other side of that is ESG. And so we've done the desktop work on the quality side and the normal valuation. And then on the ESG side, you have to go through companies. It's kind of standard policy to publish a sustainability report now, right? So you you comb through that. So we think Clix is quite a a good quality business. But environmentally, first of all, I think their material factors is things like the social capital and uh, you can call it human capital just from a staffing perspective and then data security their customers as privacy 
so you're firstly not exposed to things that could go really badly, significantly badly. They're kind of a more safer play. Then you really have to understand what are the data policies in place. It's a very interesting model and it's very different to many other asset managers. They take a magnifying glass and they go through every single note of the financial statements and the annual or the integrated report. You take a much more world view of a company in addition to the financial statements though. And try to put that down into a value, right? So that's the difficulty. <laughs> so you have to try and arrive at a figure to say if there was a significant data breach in a company like Clix, what really does it mean in terms of maybe fines, in terms of having to jack up their, their data protection services, in terms of having to repay any fallout from that breach, and then arrive at a value, and then we try to factor it into our whack or discount value for that company. Time is not on our side. Let's talk about young professionals. You are very young still, so I think you'll know what I'm talking about. A lot of young people would like to get into the investment world, maybe not as professional investors, but just somebody who wants to learn what is going on in the market, how investments work, and hopefully in the process build a, a nice portfolio. You know, everybody would like some capital available to them. What would your advice be for them when they start? Say they've put in their first thousand rands in an easy equities account. They're very excited, but they need to invest it now. What do you think they should do and how should they approach it? I think not to knock something like easy equities. It's a really useful investment approach, especially as somebody not in the space, you know, the diversity it offers you. And now you actually go onto their website and they've got really interesting kind of smart beta ETFs that you can buy and they're focused on very specific sectors, not just locally, but globally as well. So yeah, that's probably a good route. But I think you just gain so much more when you start looking at the individual names. You gain the learning and in, in individual time. names? Like the company, sorry. So like I was talking that I started with a Metrofile, for instance. That required me to really try to start understanding the company because Metrofile is not a name that, you, you know, you see. It's not a pick and pay. It's not a spur where you take your kids, right? So you really have to start reading about those companies and you start to learn those little links, especially you're a young person you can afford to take those bets. This is outside your pension money. You can afford to invest your money, like your extra money almost, into making those kinds of calls. And I'm not saying take big positions at all, but it does certainly expand the horizon for you. And stick to you companies you know. And you, and you stick to companies you know, but can I also say in doing so, you have to have that professional guidance so speak to a broker or a portfolio manager who, as I said, you might have the broad knowledge and for yourself, you've tried to get broad knowledge about the companies you're buying into, but you need somebody with the deep knowledge who has really done the numbers because the numbers are important. And while it's an, I say it's an art, the numbers base gives you a good foundation of starting to understand the company and its drivers. And understanding the cycles that a company works in and where it doesn't work when it doesn't work 
and a professional can really guide you. So just speaking to somebody. Or read and read or and read, read because and most of absolutely. those professionals also put out their views. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And ask the questions. You probably really won't have access to the management teams and stuff, but that's where it becomes important to speak to somebody who does. Lastly, and this is always the question where I get a bit of a giggle, what has been your worst investment ever? <laughs> Let's take Steinhoff out of the loop. One, you used your own money, yeah, and yeah. after which you thought, what was I thinking? Oh, and I think I just got out too early, and I got out when the share price was at a really, really lofty level. So Richmond, but I did that at the end of like 2007, you know it just ran it ran until it stopped running <laughs> so you just know the perception i think at the time of luxury brands and luxury goods are going to tank in this kind of crisis so everybody just kind of flocked out of it i think it got hammered far worse than say a british american tobacco or something like that right and so you kind of ran with the herd and you started panicking yourself. And I got out, as I say, too early because by kind of mid-2009, that thing was starting to turn a corner. And you realized... But did you make money from the transaction? Not. I could have made so much more had I remained invested. So well, my that's worst... the story of all asset managers' <laughs> lives, isn't it? It's true. It's true. I know I'm not alone in this. But the worst decision I made was the point at which I sold. The purchase was a probably a good decision, but it was the point at which I sold where I really messed it up. Now, many people think when you buy something, that's where you make the mistake. Sometimes you can make a mistake exactly. in the selling decision as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. So let's look at your best investment ever. <laughs> what has been the one you are really the most proud of today? And that, I must say, would be just when Diskem was listing. So I took a position just after listing. We couldn't really participate in the IPO. It, and it ran for a while and also just the, it was being obviously compared against the clicks. And I did it just from my experience of as a woman and you walk into into a clicks or a desk cam. And that was again on the back of my experience just looking in the street. And I think that's how young people should also approach it. You know, what are their favorite shops? You look around, what's the footprint in those shops? You know, is it busy, busy, is it pumping? And I've always seen kind of disc in that vein. It didn't last, that perception of it's going to do so much better than clicks. That's one I also got out at the right time. So that was something I, I was happy with. I can't remember how the share graph looks, but I can remember it had a good run. It had a good uh, run, yeah. Just after the listing. Mm. Nkareng, thank you so much for coming in today and for sharing your insights. It's a wonderful journey you have traveled, and may that journey continue at the same trajectory with Raindance. Thank you so, so much, Ray. It was a good chat. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. That was Nkareng Siwale. She is the founder, the CEO, the CIO and the person behind Rain Dance Asset Management. Show me the money. That was the Money Web, the A Better Investor podcast with Ray Finicap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the Money Web podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. Money Web, your trusted source for business and investment insights.